0: Welcome to the inspire link podcast, bringing you lessons from high achieving business leaders and entrepreneurs. This is your connection to inspiring leadership. I'm your host, Jennifer Trammell. We couldn't think of a better leader to kick off our first episode. One of the most widely recognized women in business leadership and named to Forbes list of the world's 100 most powerful women. Jan Fields, whose incredible journey took her from french fry cook to president of McDonald's USA. Jan Fields was a featured presenter with the NextGen Speaker Series in 2017. NextGen is our in-person event series based in Naples, Florida. Since then, she sat down to share more of her practical advice, always delivered with a hint of humor. We're sharing highlights from our interview including what it's like to be one of only a handful of women to run a fortune 500 company if you're trying to grow your business listen up for jan's perspective on scaling versus innovating and stick around to find out what happened that time mcdonald's tried to get into the pizza game jan led the strategic direction and was responsible for the overall business results of the 14,000 McDonald's restaurants throughout the United States. Jan, your McDonald's story goes back to 1978 and a McDonald's in Dayton, Ohio. How did you get started? It's
1: funny, I had never really been in a McDonald's, so I really wasn't that familiar. But it was a location that was close to where we lived, near an Air Force Base, and I stopped just really to kill time. And as I was sitting there, I was watching what they were doing, and I had worked at Dairy Queen in high school, and, you know, I was enjoying watching the interaction, saw that the sign said flexible hours, now hiring. And for some reason, the manager came over and started talking to me, and I asked what flexible hours meant. And when he told me I could work either lunch or dinner, nighttime, it made me start to think about the flexibility and I filled out an application. He hired me on the spot, which tells me that they were desperate. And uh, lo and behold, the next day I started work there and never looked back. Tell us about your very first
0: position at the restaurant.
1: So everyone back when I started, started on French fries. And as we know, McDonald's has the best French fries in the world, so it actually was a harder job than what you might expect it to be. But somebody was standing over me, teaching me how to do it. You had to salt in exactly a specific way, arches, and making sure that the fries had the proper amount of salt, which made the taste like they were supposed to be. It was a hard job. The idea, though, in McDonald's was to be able to teach you all of the different positions so that they could use you wherever they needed. A lot of times, people started by cleaning the lobby. I didn't have to do that. Um, but I started on the french fries and the next night when I came into work, they asked if I could work the cash register. And I had worked it at, at Dairy Queen, so I was excited. It was back in the old day before computer cash register, she had to write it on a menu ticket and so they saw how I interacted with the guest, and decided maybe my best spot was working the cash register.
0: So early on, how were you growing your
1: skills? it's important that you become as flexible as what you can be in jobs because the more that you know the more often you can work and the better that you can do and in that job it was one that you wanted the hours I wanted to get as many hours as possible and so if they were looking for somebody that they needed to be able to work a particular station and I had those credentials basically that's what it was called that I would be the one that got called and would be given the hours. And you know, it translates into any skill. The more you know, the more that you're able to do, and it translates into other uh, opportunities for you. So, you know, it, it taught me to try to learn and know as much as I could, as quick as what I could.
0: And by doing that, you're making yourself even more valuable to the organization. You continued to grow your career with McDonald's, tell us about that journey and getting on a managerial track really going from an individual contributor to leading a team
1: so I started as an an hourly employee making 265 an hour by the way and um, within a few weeks they asked me if I would go into management I think part of the difference between me and others I didn't start at 16 like a lot of people did I, I was almost 23 years old and that helped from a maturity standpoint so they, I took the management position just because it was making more money. So I started learning all the management roles. Pretty soon they kept offering me promotions. And I became a store manager. I had never intended to stay. I was going to be there for a short time and then move on to what I considered at that time a real job. And every day that I went, and, and it actually took place for 35 years, I loved coming in and working with the people and and the job. So every time it changed jobs, you know, there were a lot of things that were in common and that was the ability to interact with people, which I explained from interacting at the cash register, that was with guests, this was with employees. And, you know, it just kind of translated. But it was probably, I'd say 10 years before I decided, I think I'm gonna end up staying here forever. I made so many mistakes, but the fun part was really getting people to interact and have fun and doing their job because if they're having fun doing it they're going to do a better job and so you know my job was really to make things fun and one thing i learned was they wanted to work with a manager that they felt had control of the situation and really knew what they were doing you know they didn't want to have to work with somebody and they would call in sick if they thought they had to work with a person that wasn't very organized or didn't do a very good job. So they enjoyed working with me and I enjoyed working with them, but I always kind of kept them in the game, you know, doing fun games, doing things to make them get excited about what they were doing. And so that kind of helped. And as you move up, you know, you keep doing it just on a bigger level. So you become a supervisor. You've got four stores. So now you do friendly competition among four. And then you have 30 and you, you know, you try to keep a competitive, positive environment. And, and that's what people really want to work with. They don't want to work with somebody that is either negative or beats up on them. They knew I was serious, but we also like to have fun. And I also engaged them in the, um, the sales and the profitability. So they understood what a piece of cheese cost if they dropped it. They understood what the sales were that day. They understood the more they sold, the more hours they got. Because that's how that business worked. So, you know, you try to get them engaged in, you know, what it is that we're doing. They have a a better buy-in. And they also feel like, you know, that they're learning and a part of the, you know, the results and the success. And I always shared the success with them.
0: You have helped so many employees grow along the way. When it comes to motivating large teams, how do you do that as a manager?
1: I think first you have to understand each individual person and what, what do they want out of it. If it's a person that is earning money, and but yet they leave for college in September, you understand that, know that, and you help them make as much as they can so that when they leave, they've got money. The other person might be a mother that uh, needs part-time work to offset the family's expenses, so you do things that help that person. And then there's that person that really doesn't know what they want to do yet in their life. And you showed them the opportunities about McDonald's. McDonald's had a reputation and probably still does today about being a dead end job. And yet we've made more people millionaires than any company in America, maybe up until the tech boom. But they um, had this opportunity that a lot of other companies didn't provide them. If in fact they worked hard and they engaged in a way that they helped educate themselves on the business and the things that needed to be done. So, you know, everybody is an individual. And if you try to look at your employees that way and make sure that you're giving them what it is that they need, I think that that helps a lot. And then they obviously, you know, see and hear your story. So when they know that how I started and, you know, they see that, you know, I've been able to to move up and, you know, I always tried to tell people, you know, you can do whatever you want to do if you're willing to put in the work and the energy it takes to get there. When you move up and you start to get a bigger organization, you're not gonna be able to touch that two and 300 people. So you've gotta touch those direct reports. So in the case of four stores, you'd have four store managers. You wanna make sure that you hire, recruit, train, hold accountable, those four people so that they represent you and what your expectations are. And so then it's up to them to get that 100 people underneath them to do those same things. So you know, you're never going to be able to um, have a, a direct hands-on, and you miss that. You know, you, you actually like that, but you really do have it because of the direct reports. And then when you find out that, you know, maybe one of them isn't exactly, Portraying the behaviors that you want them to it might be time to move on to somebody else
0: Jan you don't have this kind of success without hard work Talk about your definition what you mean when you say that and what hard work
1: looked like throughout your career hard work Changes it never goes away from being hard work though but if as you move up if you think hard work is still doing the same thing that you did in previous positions, you know, you're mistaken because you can't do it all. So the, the hard work that I talk about is, are you willing to take assignments that nobody else wants to take? Are you willing to put in the hours to educate yourself to be able to learn and do more? Are you able to take some risk that you wouldn't have taken otherwise? So that's kind of the, the definition, what I would call hard. It wasn't hard physical but sometimes it was hard to be able to take yourself and do things that maybe weren't as comfortable as what you had done before. So hard work isn't isn't the same hard work. But I always use that phrase though because I think a lot of people think as you grow higher and get higher in an organization it's easy. There isn't anything easy. You know, it's hard no matter what. If you think about You know the president of the united states that is not an easy job right but they have a billion people that work for them however you know it's still hard so you have to always think like that hard is different for different people and hard becomes being able to influence people to do things that they really didn't know that they could do before
0: Our in-person events, the Next Gen Speaker Series, has hosted Jay Steinfeld, the founder of Blinds.com, now a Home Depot company, and he talks about experimenting without fear. What does risk and experimentation look like at a large organization like McDonald's?
1: You do see innovations come out. Remember it's an idea in somebody's head, and it often isn't really done in practical application. And so the risk that you take are figuring out, I've got this innovation, so I'll give it a, an example of drive through So they come out drive through you order one place, pick up at another. The innovations that come along are, wow, it takes a lot of time at the pickup window because we're taking cash and doing all this. It makes us slower. So maybe it would be faster if we had a window where they pay and then move up. You can get more cars through. So the idea of... You know, once an innovation is thought of and starts to be implemented, you know, the risk that you take at a field level are how do we actually implement that and make it even better. And and you have to be careful because sometimes you end up changing the whole idea. And so, you know, there's risk there. There's risk every time somebody um, had an idea about a food product. So you talked about the Egg McMuffin. That egg McMuffin was done before breakfast was really considered to be something that people went out for. So it was early enough that, you know, people ate at home. They ate cereal, they had their coffee at home, or they didn't eat breakfast. And so the egg McMuffin comes. The egg McMuffin alone wasn't enough to substantiate people coming to breakfast. So a lot of the risk was putting something in, bringing in employees. When you weren't doing that much business, so eventually you start saying, "Well, we've got to do something else to, you know, influence people to come in the doors," and so that's where different kind of games took place, or you gave away shavers. I remember those um, uh, promotions. Then you know came hotcakes and you know other products, but. You know, there's risk in everything you do. And McDonald's failed at a lot of things. And, and I'm not good at giving sports analogies, but you know, the one I like to use is the, the number of at bats. You know, if you don't swing for it ever, you'll never have a success. So you have to swing. Not all of them are gonna be home runs. I can give you another example if you'd like on risk. You know, a risk was overnight business. You know, having stores stay open overnight. And depending on the location, there was a risk. You know, people would think, oh, robbery, or could I get enough people to work, and you know, how do we keep the food hot during those times? It's now kind of a standard thing. And the reason why is because everyone works a 24-hour shift. I mean, that's not unusual. We knew back then it was primarily limo drivers, nurses, or hospital personnel, factory workers. But what you didn't realize, it's everyday Americans and so the potential risk that you thought was there wasn't really there because it took care of itself now is there still risk in you know high crime areas of course but they don't stay open 24 in most cases Mm -hmm. but I, i always like to think about you know some of these big innovations that really changed mcdonald's years ago there were only a certain Restaurants and if if you were in the Midwest, it was white castle. They were 24 hours. You know, everybody knew it Everybody went there after drinking had a white castle. It's the only time that they ate there, but they they had something there And, and The same thing on Waffle House, you know, there was something unique And it was 24 hour. I think as you try to grow a business at some point you can't keep opening new locations You know you can but they're not as many And so you've got to figure out other ways to grow and you want it to grow within that same footprint because you've invested a lot of money in that brick and mortar of that location and so what other things can you do you see now where um certain places are letting you take um, amazon product back and return it there's amazon fulfillment centers going in at whole foods and you know it's about taking advantage of that brick and mortar to get more out of it without having to do any new investment or big investment. And that's where products, hours, different things like that are, you know, relatively, you know, easy to be able to, to do. And, you know, then you just wanna see if it's profitable.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, McDonald's had Redbox at one time mm-hmm. and now they're in the grocery stores, but uh, we thought, oh, that'd be great. People can come get a movie. And then, but then, you know, the the consequences are, you don't wanna have half of those movies at a McDonald's. So then, you know, you've gotta look at what are the risk and the reward. And it wasn't enough. At a dollar a movie, the reward is just not very good. McDonald's had tons of uh, flops during my time. One that a lot of people don't even realize. I was in the market where we introduced pizza. And we had a, a pizza oven and We could cook the pizza in five minutes, and it was fantastic. Unfortunately, the first problem that we had was a large pizza wouldn't fit through the drive-thru window at the time. Because the drive-thru windows were the little ones. So then we had to change that. The other thing was we learned that pizza is local. And by that, I mean everybody has their favorite pizza. And so it's very hard to get a business like that to be a national chain. Some have done a fantastic job of it. But it, what you have to spend money on advertising. And McDonald's didn't want to spend money advertising pizza when at the end of the day, it was gonna be a very small percentage of their sales. It's far better to, to advertise things that we sell a lot of. And so basically it died, it wasn't successful because we couldn't afford to keep advertising it.
0: You, me, so many of our listeners We're all lifelong learners. Let's talk about how you continued to build skills throughout your career, and the role mentors played in that. Mentorship is a pillar of the Next Gen Speaker Series. So we really wanna know about some of the important mentors along your journey.
1: I was very fortunate because I started with a great store manager. And he was the kind of guy who, he was, on top of everything i mean he knew every detail i can remember when we did inventory he used to make us count stir sticks and i always thought that's the craziest thing ever can't you just take a hand and figure out how many are in that hand and then say you know multiply it uh, which we started doing later on but he was the kind of guy who taught you details and i always remembered that he had very high standards of appearance of the behaviors And so, you know, I was lucky because I learned from him. What I learned through the years is that you want to learn, you know, from people that are good and bad. So what you learn from bad are those things that you say, boy, when I'm in charge, I'll never do that. So they might be the person who didn't talk appropriately to an employee or they were sloppy dressed or they didn't have the same standards. So, you know, you, you learn from a lot of people. I was fortunate. That I had some really good mentors throughout the course of my time and I always was curious and tried to talk to people so that I always think that there's something good out of everybody and so figure out what that is don't just automatically think that that's all bad there's probably something good or they wouldn't have gotten there and so I learned a lot from them and I used outside people too but you know my my real circle was obviously more inside McDonald's in the early years As it got into the later years and I was a vice president and above and started getting involved in community activities, you know, it certainly grew to, you know, getting to know more people outside of McDonald's and understanding things. In addition, every time a class came up that I could take, McDonald's offered a lot. They did a fantastic job training you. You had to go through and there is a Hamburger University and I am a graduate. Um, but you also go back multiple times because every promotion you get there's another class that you have to pass so your first class is to be a store manager and then it's a supervisor and then it's a field consultant so you know you continue to be educated all the way through even as um, a president you're still going to things it's typically at a university like a northwestern kellogg school and so you know it's a never-ending education process.
0: You focus on using data as an important tool to make decisions and even to coach teams. How do you do that?
1: You you always carried a stopwatch. I mean, that was kind of like standard equipment and a thermometer. And you'd test the temperature of products to make sure that they were also the right temperature. So let's just say coffee as an example. If you tested the temperature, you would know if they overheld it. If it was only good for 30 minutes, you check the, check the temperature and it's below what that temperature should be. That means that they've kept it too long. So, you know, you use things and data can help you figure out what a problem is. And then you're able to quicker get to a solution where you can't just say to somebody, you know, I was in your drive through and it was seven minutes because I think I, that wasn't true. It was probably two minutes and she felt like it was seven. But when you have a, you know, a stopwatch and you show them, it typically provides a little more specific to it. And then you teach them that same thing. Oftentimes, we don't really even realize how long things take, and it's good that you don't. But if you notice in a lot of locations where you're waiting for, for something, they'll have a TV going or something else, that's to distract you so it doesn't feel like it's so long, which is a good thing. You know, because if you don't have anything, if you're in your car, you're in a hurry, all you want is to get that food and get out of there. And so, you know, it's making people aware of reality. So I always had, you know, I even talked my husband into carrying stopwatches, uh, uh thermometers and everything so that he would know and when my daughter was young, she used to always go and do what we would call store visits and shop stores, go through drive through and see how long it took, taste the food. She loved it, it was a free meal. The, the one thing to me that's most important is to recognize that the customer will only come back if they're satisfied because there's a lot of choices. And so, you know, you really need to keep a close eye on them individually and then the numbers. So to me, a guest count or a transaction count, whatever you call that, that to me was always the most important data. How many people I had this year on February 14th versus how many I had last year on February 14th. You know, and, and obviously everybody will always say what well, was a Tuesday versus a Wednesday, what, but you need to understand, you know, the the same day um, differences. But you wanna understand, and if, there, if you don't have as many, then you really need to ask yourself, why is that? Why and where are they going? I used to go around to other restaurants in my store areas to see how many of my customers that I knew and why they were somewhere else and start to figure out what is it that they offer that we don't and those are the kind of things that I tell people to be aware of and to use data for the data is to help drive you know business and it starts with your existing if you have to get a new customer every time you eventually run out of them it's very expensive to recruit a new customer versus keeping that same customer and getting them to come more often or buy more. It's funny everyone wants to think they're an innovator. I don't think I innovated anything but what I did do is scale things so oftentimes it was somebody else's idea but helped implement it and scale it and so that goes back to some of those risks that you're taking so the idea of McCafe you know that was something that I helped scale through the system It wasn't my idea I mean, I didn't innovate coffee. That was something that was out there. There were, there were businesses that were living off of coffee alone. So at the time, Dunkin' and Starbucks, that's all they sold. So you think, well, if they can do that, why can't we? And we have a drive-thru, and they don't. Now, they all have drive-thrus, as you notice. But the idea of innovating versus being able to scale, I think, are somewhat two different things, but also the same. Because there's a lot of innovations that aren't able to be scaled. So they can create something, but if there's not a way to put it into action, it falls short. So you know, I didn't innovate anything, I scaled a lot of things, some things scaled better than others. I'll give a good example you know, for McCafe, was you know, we put a team together and I had this fantastic guy that was running it. You, you could give him anything and he you know, would be able to do it. But we, we formed a team, we had measures. So the number of stores, and we had um, milestones. So within the first three months, we'd have 20% of the stores implemented. We had a a long-term milestone of we want to start national advertising by a certain date. So every week, we, we measured how many stores we had. We had everybody involved in this, even legal, because in many cases, our restaurants were located in places that may have had clauses that said you can't put coffee in, because there was a Starbucks next door or whatever. So, you know, for competitive reasons, when you go into different locations, you may be excluded from selling different products. Dairy Queen would be a good example. We couldn't sell an ice cream cone if you had a Dairy Queen there. And people don't realize that. So you get everybody on board, and everybody had a job to do. So in that example, legal had to make sure that all the locations had the right to be able to install that. Then you have somebody that orders the equipment, and then you have the equipment manufacturer. So you know when the phrase about it takes a village, it takes more than a village. But the idea of how does somebody become good at that is they're good at project management, but even better at picking the right people to handle certain tasks. So you don't necessarily want to get somebody that's never done that job before. There's a phrase that we used to call aces in their places. So I want the best person if I'm planning to get this done. And so you have this team of people that are all subject matter experts, and that now becomes the group that is responsible to get things done. You know, nothing is done by an individual. You know, it's all done by a collection of individuals, each doing their own thing. And, you know, that's how we were able to scale and get things done quickly.
0: In 2020, the number of women running America's largest corporations hit a new high. 37 of the Fortune 500 companies are now led by female CEOs. You're one of the few women who have made it to that level of business. How did you navigate often being the only woman in the room?
1: It's hard. I mean, no one ever wants to be the only one. You know, it's lonely. And so, you know, I would tell you, I was a competitive person, and I always felt like I could do more than they could. So I never let the gender part, get in the way. But it is lonely. And, you know, you don't necessarily have anybody that you can look to to say, what's the appropriate thing to wear today? Or, you know, things like that that you, you know, because I wasn't going to be a man. I'm I'm not a man. And I did not want to be one. And so you want to be able to maintain who you are without having to be one of them. But recognizing that they see a difference too and sometimes they weren't comfortable and so part of my goal was to make them comfortable too and while i'm not one of you guys as a guy you know i can certainly talk about the same things that you can and maybe even more so you know i i think it's unproductive to get hung up on things that you can't control and that wasn't going to change so to me i tried to figure out how to make it work i played golf with them and i tried to play as good as them or better Um, I could take them on, on anything. I could fix equipment back in the day better than they could. But, you know, it was one of those that, you know, I have five brothers, so that helped, you know. It's um, one of the things that you recognize as you get in a higher position that you don't want people to be the only. So it, whether it be, you know, gender, ethnicity, you know, gay. It's all the same. You know, if you're the only one, it's lonely because people can't identify. Sometimes they're not comfortable identifying with you. But once they see that it's normal, you know, they they tend to be a little bit better. And my goal was always to make sure that they were comfortable with me. And I did it through laughter because I laugh at everything. So, you know, and, and most anybody can, if they know that you're funny, but if they thought for a moment that I was going to use that, then that just made them come down harder on me. So I I just didn't play that game with them. But I think the first step is the way that you look and present yourself. And whether it be that strong, firm handshake, that look in the eyes, that making sure that you're dressed appropriately, Um, you know, you want to look your best. And so I think that that part really is important. And whether men have to do it or not, that's not important. You know, you got to worry about yourself. But I think that that's, that's one of the things. And then the, the second part of that is make sure that you really pour yourself into the core of the business. And by that, I mean understand how money is made at that company. Read the annual report. Understand the proxy. Understand the business so that you don't stand out. You're one of all as opposed to one of a few. And I think that that starts to take gender away from it.
0: Jan, what advice would you leave us with?
1: I never thought past the job I had. I really, every time thought that's the last job I'm ever going to have. I've got to do it the best I can. I know that a lot of people say, you know, when they're young, I want to be the president of this company. I never thought like that because you know and I tell people if you're not doing the job that you have you aren't going to get it anyway focus on the job that you have and the others come easier
0: Jan Fields thank you for all of the wisdom you have shared with us okay let's recap those lessons learned one learn from everyone around you even if it's learning what you don't want to do those things you say when I'm in charge that won't happen two Scaling can be its own form of innovation and one that may prove to be the most profitable. Three, treat your current job as if it were your last and do your very best. This has been the InspireLink podcast, your connection to inspiring leadership. Hey, as you heard, InspireLink also puts on the NextGen Speaker Series in Naples, Florida. If you want to keep learning from Fortune 500 level CEOs, get your NextGen Speaker Series season pass. Visit nextgennaples.com slash subscribe. Again, that's nextgennaples.com slash subscribe. NextGen is hosting Five Below CEO Joel Anderson coming up on February 26. Your season pass includes access to the virtual event and a copy of the leadership book Joel uses with every employee, everyone from entry-level positions to senior executives. I'm your host, Jennifer Trammell. Thanks for listening. Now, go implement those lessons learned because inspiration without discipline is meaningless.